Well, good morning. Um, I have the privilege of, of being with you this morning. Kevin and Russ asked me to speak when they were out of town. Um, and as I was kind of searching for inspiration for, uh, for the passage, the longer I let my beard grow, the more I felt in tune with the scripture. And then I had my wife cut my hair and it was like amazing. I had this longer beard and this shorter hair and I felt like I was channeling my inner Russ as I was really engaging <laughs> with the scripture. And so I figured I'd let it go until, until they got back. Don't tell them I said that. I don't know if that's a shot or not. But um, We've been in Acts recently, and uh, I know last week Kevin spoke on Acts 21, the first portion of Acts 21. And so I'm going to cover the end of Acts 21 and kind of the beginning of, of Acts 22. And when Russ emailed me, kind of asking me to speak on this passage, he included the text, and I thought, wow, that's, that's a lot of scripture. It's a lot to cover. Uh, now, later in the email, he said, well, you can cover one verse, or you can cover all of it, or you can cover somewhere in between. So I was kind of comforting. But as I, as I went through it, as I read it, there wasn't very much that didn't fit. It seemed to all be fairly congruent. Um, and thinking about Acts, Acts is kind of the narrative of the early church, right? It's, it's mostly this big, long story. And so it's a little bit different than if you were looking at, say, Paul's letters, where if you do more than eight verses at a time, you're swimming in theology, right? Acts is cool because you can read a good chunk of it at once, and the context is really informative. And so we're going to cover a lot of scripture this morning, uh, but I don't think we'll sacrifice too much detail in doing so. Um, so let me pray real quick. I know Allison prayed, but I don't think that you can overdo that. Uh, and so I'm going to pray again, and uh, then, we'll, then we'll get going. So Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be here. Um, thank you for New Community uh, and this group of people. Again, thank you for the volunteers that helped get things set up when most of the staff was gone. Um, I pray that you be with me and with us as we jump into the scripture together. Amen. So, growing up, I think everybody had or kind of looked at um, kind of a mentor or role model, right? Someone you looked up to, it could have been a sibling or a cousin or a teacher, a coach, famous athlete, movie star, pastor, youth leader, etc. They might not have been perfect, but in your eyes, they were, they were pretty good. They were kind of like that person when you looked at them, you're like, man, I want to be like them, right? And when I was growing up, that person for me was my cousin Colin. Now, Colin was a wide receiver at Washington State when I was in elementary school. He got great grades, he was kind to everyone, and paid attention to me whenever I came around, even though I was you know, this annoying little fourth grader. And we would often go to his games down in Pullman, and after the game, we would, we would talk with him, and he would always check in with me, even though there'd be 20 people around, and, and talk football. And once in a while, if I was lucky, he'd take me into the locker room and meet his teammates. And um, So Colin was kind of the guy that I wanted to be. He's that person that I looked up to. And so to kind of really engage this mindset, what I'd like you to do, um, I'd like you to think of a person in your life who you would deem as a role model. And that could be someone that's a role model right now or it could have been a role model that you had growing up. And in fact, I'd like you to think about that, and then maybe just tell the person next to you, take about two minutes, and kind of come up with that role model, and then talk about it with the person next to you real quick, specifically about what qualities made them a good role model. If you guys would go ahead, that'd be awesome. Okay. So do you have somebody in mind? you kind of have somebody up in your head? Can I have like two or three people shout out maybe a quality about that person? What made them a good role model? Just a couple characteristics. What? Selfless. Selfless. Okay. Forgiving. Forgiving. Generous. Generous. 
Patience. How about two more? Wise. Wise. What? Passionate. Perfect. Perfect. So these are all really, really good examples. Um, and the reason I wanted you to do this is because I think uh, kind of stepping into our text for the early church, probably outside of Jerusalem, but all of the other portions of the early church, this role model, this person they looked up to was Paul. Paul, the missionary extraordinaire, the leader, and a man who lived by the Spirit. He was by no means perfect, but he gave specific attention to all of his churches. He was emotionally connected, incredibly invested, and cared about them deeply. Last week, uh, Kevin spoke about the pain that was present when Paul left some of these communities because they were so connected. Right? They, they loved each other deeply. He talked about one congregation that walked out to the city gates and knelt and prayed for Paul as he left. He was widely loved and well-regarded. He was the guy that they wanted to be like. The cool thing about this is that Paul embraced this role. He took it head-on, in fact. Uh, He took it to the next level and actually told churches, and we have record of this in 1 Corinthians 4, to imitate him like he imitates Christ. So as we move through this text, I'm going to do my best to give a healthy amount of background and context, but in addition to that, I'm going to highlight the ways that I think Paul is worthy of imitation, why he should be our role model as well in addition to Christ. So the setting for this section of Acts is in the city of Jerusalem. It's around the year 58 AD, and this is after Paul's third missionary journey has ended. This is before his Roman imprisonment, but you could actually say that this particular text is kind of what gets the ball rolling for that imprisonment, where some commentators think he died just a few years later. We're going to cover Acts 21, 27 through chapter 22, 16. And like I said before, it's a lot of scripture. But given the fact that it's story, it's narrative, the context is really important. And so I think it's important to read narrative in large chunks. As we move through it, I'm going to break it up into three sections. And our first section of text is Acts 21, verses 27 through 36. It says this. When the seven days were almost completed... The Jews from Asia, who had seen him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd. They seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against our people, our law, and this place. More than that, he has actually brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was aroused, and the people rushed together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. When they were trying to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Immediately he took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came, arrested him, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. So he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When Paul came to the steps, the violence of the mob was so great that he had to be carried away by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Away with him! So in this first block of text, we see that Paul is reintroduced into the Jerusalem temple scene. Now, as Kevin mentioned last week, in order to kind of placate to the Jews... Paul had taken a Nazaritic vow, engaged in a sacred Jewish custom. Now, this custom involved abstaining from wine, avoiding all things that were dead, and not cutting the hair, usually for a period of 30 days. 
At the end of the vow, the custom was to declare in the temple that the vow was up, which would be followed by a seven-day period of cleansing and would end with the shaving of one's head. And yet, in the text, we see that Paul couldn't even get through this seven-day cleansing period that went with his vow before the people started to stir against him. There were some Jews from, from Asia there. They were in Jerusalem. And Asia here isn't talking about Asia, the continent. What we're talking about is the Roman province, Asia Minor. And that's similar to modern-day Turkey. It's on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And the city in Asia Minor that Paul spent most of his time in was Ephesus. He founded a church there and spent a number of years with that body. Now, these Jews were more than likely familiar with Paul because of the time spent in Ephesus. We have a little bit of a hint from the text because they recognized Trophimus, who himself was from Ephesus. And so these Jews that are from Ephesus that are in Jerusalem are like, hey, that's that guy from that church in Jerusalem, or excuse me, in Ephesus. We've got to get him. Now, recall from other accounts of Paul's ministry, his practice and his custom was that when he showed up in a new city, he first went to the synagogue to preach the gospel. And then after that, he would preach to the Gentiles at large. Now, oftentimes, when he did this, the Jews didn't really hear his message, would often kick, kick him out of the synagogue. And so these Jews perhaps were part of that group that kicked him out of the synagogue in Ephesus. We also know that Paul's ministry in Ephesus was incredibly successful. So successful, in fact, that the silversmiths of the city rioted against Paul and Christians because they were stealing their business for the temple. I would imagine that these Jews from Ephesus probably didn't like Paul any better because he was pulling people away from the synagogue and from the pagan temples to become a part of the Ephesian church. And so these Jews who have a grudge, they stir up the whole crowd, right? They grab Paul and they drag him out of the temple because no good Jew kills somebody inside the temple. Now, ironically... Had it not been for the Roman tribune, tribune is the leader of the military contingent in the city, Paul may have died then and there. However, in spite of the danger, we see from Paul's example that he was unafraid to share the gospel. This is worth worth taking note of. In Acts 21.4, Paul was warned not to go to Jerusalem by disciples of Christ in Tyre. And yet despite this, and despite the warnings from James once he got to Jerusalem, Paul was determined to walk into the temple and to minister to the people there. This determination and this bravery was a huge part of his ministry. He acknowledged the danger of his task, and yet in a very Christ-like fashion, Paul forged on for the work of the gospel. As we kind of move through this, I've got just a couple of pondering questions. The first one is this. Where in your life have you preached Christ bravely? And where have you shied away from it? And I just kind of want you to kind of roll these over in your head as we're thinking about this, kind of things that helped, help these points to stick. In a society where sometimes we're nervous to talk about church with our neighbors or our coworkers, we could learn a thing or two from a man who was fighting to proclaim Christ through a deadly mob. In section 2, is Acts 21.37 through 22.5. says this, Just as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? The tribune replied, Do you know Greek? Then you are not the Egyptian who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 assassins into the wilderness. 
Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of an important city. I beg you, let me speak to the people. When he had given him permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the people for silence. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, listen to the defense that I now make before you. When they heard him addressing them in Hebrew, they became even more quiet. Then he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, educated strictly according to our ancestral law, being zealous for God, just as all of you are today. I persecuted this way up to the point of death by binding both men and women and putting them in prison, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can testify about me. From them I also received letters to the brothers in Damascus, and I went there in order to bind those who were there and to bring them back to Jerusalem for punishment. So in this next section, we see just after Paul was saved from the mob by the Roman leader of the military in that part of Jerusalem, he starts asking questions. Now, put yourself in Paul's shoes. You just got the crap beat out of you by this mob. Maybe your face is bloody, you're exhausted, and you get pulled out by this Roman military leader. Now, if this were me, I'd be saying, okay, I need to go home, take a nap, and never go back there again. <laughs> Right? But the first thing Paul does is he asks permission to speak to the people that were just pummeling him. This is crazy. The interesting piece, though, that we might miss in this is that Paul knows that there's a right way and a wrong way to speak with Romans. As a member of the Roman military, oftentimes soldiers had the opportunity to either buy or earn their citizenship. They could essentially pay their dues to become a part of the country that they were serving. Citizenship was a big deal. If you could prove, or someone could prove, that they were either a Roman citizen or somebody of high social standing, maybe highly educated in the Roman society, you immediately earned the respect of a Roman soldier because Roman soldiers understood the value of that social status. So Paul knew this. And he spoke to the soldier in Greek which would have been a sign that he was highly educated. And it works perfectly. He gets the soldier's attention. The soldier actually assumed that he was an Egyptian assassin. And now when I read that, I was kind of like, okay, that's kind of weird. Who's the Egyptian assassin? <laughs> right? And so I did a little research, and the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that around that time, there was an Egyptian who had gathered a group of about 4,000 people outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. And the notion was that they were going to revolt against the Romans. Being Egyptian he would have spoken either the local dialect, which would have been Aramaic, or he would have spoken Coptic, which was an Egyptian tongue, but was considered a little bit barbaric. So when Paul spoke Greek, he immediately removed all doubt as to his social status. And because of that, the Roman tribune allowed him to speak to the people. Now, this brings us to our next example. Paul had moxie. To have moxie is to be on the ball, perceptive, aware of your situation and ready to respond to it, often in clever ways. Oftentimes as Christians, I think that we can get caught in the notion that God will move or he won't. We talk about God opening and closing doors, the spirit moving and God providing for us. And, and I myself often use this language. I try my best to identify God's movement in my life, and I think this is an important practice to acknowledge this. However, I think that we can tend to minimize and forget all of the skills, 
talents, knowledge, and common sense that God has provided for us, right? We didn't earn it. But that this is for the good of his kingdom also. God provided a Roman tribune to pull Paul out of this mob. Without this, he would have been beaten to death. But afterwards, Paul has the moxie, the common sense, the shrewdness to advocate for himself to speak to the crowd. And he does so in a way that he knows would get the soldier's attention. He's clever about the way he goes about it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to imply that Paul was manipulative or malicious. I don't think he was. In fact, I think Paul was probably one of the most authentic guys around. He was the one that says to his churches, there is no Jew, nor Greek, nor slave, or free man in the body of Christ, that everyone was of the same status in the kingdom. But he also knew that if his earthly knowledge earned him earthly status, and this status helped him to preach the gospel, then he was going to use it to his fullest potential for that work. Paul trusted God to guide him in the work of the kingdom, but he also made the most out of every ounce of God-given talent, knowledge, and status he had in order to further the work of the gospel. Now, as he begins to speak to the Hebrew people, Paul continues to show his awareness for his surroundings. He moves from speaking Greek to speaking Hebrew because he knows that with the Jewish audience, he will have more credibility and thus more of a platform. As he speaks, what he says is important. He does his best to absolutely build up his case and build up his credibility in the Jewish community. He addresses them by calling them brothers and fathers. This was an intimate address that you wouldn't just use with anyone. He told them where he grew up. He told them that he studied the law and who he studied it under. This would be similar if I were talking to a group of people from North Spokane. I said, friends, I'm just like you. I grew up in Indian Trail. I went to Assumption and I graduated from North Central. I've played in 20 hoop fests and I have Randy James as a science teacher and I learned Jesus from Young Life and from Kelly Walters. Right? They would get it. Okay? They know Gamaliel. They know who he's talking about. And he builds up this credibility before he starts to preach the gospel. He wants them to trust him. And he wants them to feel a sense of kinship towards him. And they should. Because in many ways, Paul was just like them. And so again, just a quick step back, something to ponder. When have you used your skills, your talents, and your connections for the sake of the gospel? Not in a manipulative way, but in a way that honors God with what he's blessed you with. Could you do this better? And we know that Paul was genuine and authentic. But he also used his talents, his connections, his education, and his background as much as he possibly could to further the gospel, because Paul had moxie. In section 3, this is Acts 22, 6 through 16. It says this, While I was on my way and approaching Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone about me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I answered, Who are you, Lord? And then he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not hear the voice of the one who was speaking to me. I asked, What am I to do, Lord? The Lord said to me, Get up and go to Damascus. There you will be told everything that has been assigned to you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, 
those who were with me took my hand and led me to Damascus. A certain Ananias, who was a devout man according to the law and well spoken of by all the Jews living there, came to me and standing beside me said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. In that very hour, I had regained my sight and saw him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear his own voice. For you will be his witness to all the world of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you delay? Get up, be baptized, and have your sins washed away, calling on his name. So the last portion of the text is a story that probably most of us are fairly familiar with. Um, At the very least, if you were here when, I can't remember if it was Kevin or Russ, but they preached on Acts 9. It's the same story. In fact, this story occurs three times in the book of Acts. Acts 9, here in Acts 22, and again in Acts 26. It's Paul's story of his collision with Jesus. Now before I share another reason why Paul is worth worth imitation, why he's a good role model, I want to continue to emphasize Paul's awareness of his audience. Much can be learned when we compare the three accounts of his conversion. Now, In chapter 9, Luke is narrating the story, and it's the longest of the three. Ananias is described as a disciple, and he uses Christian language when he starts speaking about God. In the version Paul tells in chapter 26, he's giving a testimony to a government leader named Agrippa, he doesn't even mention Ananias. doesn't bring him up in his part of the story. And when he's talking about God, again, he uses Christian language. I say Christian because it's Lord Jesus, kind of language we would be familiar with in a Christian context, uh, to describe God. Kind of the outlier here is, is this version in chapter 22. Paul sculpts this story to his audience. When Paul introduces Ananias to the story, he describes him as a devout man according to the law who was well spoken of by the Jews in the area. Now, speaking to a Hebrew audience, this would have held far more weight than if he simply called him a disciple. In addition to this, when Paul speaks of Ananias speaking, as one would tell a story, Ananias doesn't say Lord Jesus. He says the God of our fathers. This would have been a familiar phrase to a Hebrew audience. They would have picked up on this and noticed that he was talking about the God of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Paul's doing his very, very best to shape this story, to engage his Jewish audience and to say, guys, I'm right there with you. I'm from where you're from. I know what you're talking about, and I know the Hebrew Bible, and this is the same God. Paul's ability to understand and mold his environment and his audience while not sacrificing the core message of his story is truly one of his best skills. This brings us to our next point. Paul was engaging this Hebrew audience But he didn't sacrifice the core message of his story because at the end of the day, what mattered most to Paul was Jesus. Now, Paul was a Pharisee. He grew up memorizing the Old Testament. He knew it like the back of his hand. If he was to really wow this Jewish audience, he could have pulled out 50 different prophecies and related them all back to Jesus if he wanted to, right? He knew the Hebrew Bible that well. He could have theologically explained how Jesus was the final sacrifice for all sins, how he was the scapegoat, and how they needed to put their trust in him. But he didn't do this. Instead, he simply shared who Jesus was and how he affected his life. 
Paul's theology was rich. Over the course of the 14 books in the New Testament in which Paul is thought to at least have been a contributor, he covers a broad spectrum of topics. However, I think it's important that we make a distinction between when Paul was writing to the church and when Paul was speaking to folks who hadn't interacted with Christ yet. The polished, complex theology and thought that we see in his New Testament letters were always addressed to groups or individuals who had already interacted and committed their life to Jesus Christ. When Paul was talking to people who hadn't interacted with Christ yet, like most of his sermons in Acts, he kept his theology fairly simple. Who is Jesus? And what did he do for me? And the Jews Paul were speaking to were non-believers. While they believed in the God of the Old Testament, they didn't know Jesus as Messiah. And so Paul kept it simple. I think that as we read this story, it's important for us to remember that when Paul was speaking to non-believers, all he did was preach Jesus and him crucified, what he did for Paul. So like the early church, as we look for examples, we look for role models, we look for people we can look up to, outside of Christ, I think it's important that we remember Paul. Paul, who was not afraid to preach the gospel, who had moxie and did it in a clever way, and who deeply cared about the simple message of Jesus. Let's pray.